Heavenly Father, it's easy for us to believe in your providence and your care for your people when things are going well in our lives, but so much more difficult when we're struggling, when we're suffering, when we're going through difficult times. We know, Father, that you are always good. We know that you are always worthy of glory and honor and praise. I pray today, Lord, that you would press it upon our hearts and minds, this most extraordinary truth that your providential care in great detail preside over your people. That every moment of every day, Father, you specifically guide our paths. You have destined our end to be with Christ in the eternal palace, regardless of the circumstances and the difficulties we experience here on earth. I ask, Father, that you would show us that until Christ comes again, evil, real evil, will be part of this fallen world, even part of our own lives. Show us, Father, the providential care that you have over your church, the detail that you exercise to ensure that we persevere to the end. And show us, as we will see from the passage, our responsibility to participate in your care. And then I pray, Father, you would give us a great hope that you would show us, Lord, that regardless of how this life goes, the good and the bad, that our end, our end is with Christ in the eternal palace. I pray you would show us that now, that we might never be discouraged, that we might never be afraid, that we might never be filled with anxiety. Show us that, Father, for your glory, I pray. Cause us right now by your Holy Spirit to understand the word that is preached. I pray, Lord, that you would cause me to faithfully preach it. If you would be pleased to change us, Father, we desire to be changed in your Spirit. And we know, Holy Spirit, that that can only come through you. So do that great work now, Father. Make us more and more into the image of Christ, who one day we will see face to face, and as your Scriptures teach so clearly, we will be as He is. We long for that day, but until then, make us faithful, I pray, in Christ's holy name, amen. Amen. Welcome. So glad you're here. You like the lengthy title of that sermon, Providence. You thought, well, Pastor, couldn't you come up with anything more creative than that? The answer is absolutely not. Um, it, it fits. The entire passage is dealing with the providential work, the detailed providential work of God in the Apostle Paul's life. It's something we don't talk about much. Um, unless things are not going well, then we drop the word providence in there to ease the pain at times. Um, we've heard it a lot over the past week. I've heard things said about God and providence this past week that have been very disturbing and certainly unbiblical. Um, last week, as you know, an 18-year-old walked into an elementary school in Texas and he executed 19 children and two adults, systematically murdered them. The national response was one of grief and horror, and rightfully so. Uh, the stories coming out of the carnage that took place in that school are, are almost too much to bear knowing that we're talking about fourth graders. Super hard to hear for all those who love children. Grief, sadness, I would say a righteous anger, all appropriate responses. But for the Christian with a biblical worldview, being shocked or surprised or blindsided that something like this can happen in the 21st century is not the right response. Um, ever since the fall, going all the way back, Genesis chapter 3, listen, evil, not goodness, dominates the human heart. Evil, not goodness, permeates our fallen creation. 
And therefore, such acts of calculated evil, and it was calculated, should not catch us off guard as Christians, but instead should press us to God and press us to Christ that we might pray for those who have gone through this horrific trial and that we might move to Christ because only Jesus Christ and only the gospel offers a real hope of overcoming our present evil. And so this morning, we're going to join Paul in Jerusalem, and we will see the same evil perpetuated them. Forty men wanted to assassinate, wanted to murder God's messenger. And we will see God's providence in thwarting the plan. It permeates our verses as he not only delivers Paul from the evil of these assassins, but he delivers him into a palace in Caesarea. And from this real-life drama, it is my prayer and my hope that we will see and we will believe in the providence of God in every detail of our lives. Without exception, God is working in and through you if you know Christ. And God's promise to deliver you from this present evil into the palace of the King and in the presence of Jesus Christ. Amen? All right, three things I want to show you. I want you to be radically encouraged if you're in Christ. And if you're not in Christ, then repent and believe and, and know Him today. What a great response to this passage. Three things to be encouraged by if you're in Christ. Number one, expect evil. Number two, participate in providence. And number three, prepare for a palace. Expect the evil that we have. Participate in the providence of God in your life. And yes, we are called to do that. And number three, prepare for a palace. Prepare for your eternal dwelling with the king. The theme of the sermon is simple. Fear no evil for God is with you and God is for you. Fear no evil because God is with you if you're in Christ and God is for you if you're in Christ. Point number one. Um, expect evil. So um, Paul's last few days in Jerusalem, they were bumpy. I mean, he's, he already was notified by Jesus in person. Jesus came down, manifested himself to Jesus, to, to Paul, and said, I'm going to send you to Rome. But in a matter of days, if you remember, Paul was taken out of the temple, and he was nearly beaten to death by a riotous crowd. And then he was arrested and put in chains by Lysias, who thought he was an Egyptian assassin. And then uh, Lysias decides he's going to have him flogged, even though he's a Roman citizen, without trial, without witnesses, without even a charge. He was going to submit him to the Roman flogging. And then Lysias decides he wants more information, so he brings him before the Sanhedrin, the Jewish ruling body of the day, to get some more information. And then a riot takes place there. Paul's almost torn to pieces. It's been a long few days for the Apostle Paul. What we see here, though, is this really is just the beginning. It's the reason that Jesus came and encouraged him in person because he has a long few years ahead of him as he makes his way to Rome and then when he gets there. Look at verse 12. When it was day, the Jews made a plot and bound themselves by an oath neither to eat nor drink till they had killed Paul. Verse 13, there were more than 40 who made this conspiracy. So 40 Jews, those who professed faith in Yahweh, the God of the Bible, they take it upon themselves to, to make an oath to murder, to murder the apostle Paul. It was a sworn pact that bound them to this evil deed. So much so they said they, they were going to fast. They weren't going to eat or drink until Paul is dead. So it would be Paul's death by murder or their death by starvation. Those were the stakes at play. And this was not just a normal oath in the, in the language and in the time. It was an extreme oath where they were actually saying, we're making an oath to not eat or drink until Paul is dead. And if we do not do that, then God may curse us. So they're actually calling for God to intervene if they fail. Now, 40 plus men was more than sufficient to overtake 
and maybe a few guards that would be escorting Paul to and from places around the temple. But they needed an opportunity to strike. So what do evil men do when exercising a plot? They find other evil men to help them out. Look at verse 14. They went to the chief priests and elders and they said, We have strictly bound ourselves by an oath to taste no food till we have killed Paul. Verse 15. Now therefore you, along with the council, give notice to the tribune to bring him down to you as though you were going to determine his case more exactly and we are ready to kill him before he comes near. So did you notice the assassins? They don't go to the Pharisees because the Pharisees, Paul identified himself as a Pharisee believing in the resurrection and they don't go to, they don't go to the Pharisees because the Pharisees now are sympathetic to Paul's cause. Instead they go to Ananias, the corrupt high priest, and they go to the Sadducees who were sitting on the Sanhedrin, all of whom were more than happy to help the assassins take the apostles' life. I mean, this was great for them. They could get Paul out of their hair and keep their hands clean because the assassins would take care of it. And the plan was simple. They said, send a message to Lysias, tell him that you want to discuss the situation with Paul a little bit more, have Lysias bring Paul down, and when they do, we'll be waiting with knives in hand to assassinate the apostle, to commit murder in the temple courts. Now, unrestrained evil, as we know, knows no bounds, my beloved. The same men, these are the same men who accuse the apostle of being against the temple, desecrating the temple, and their plan is to what? In order to get from the barracks to the the meeting place of the Sanhedrin, they were going to cross the temple courts. And so at the same courts, they said, Paul, you've desecrated these courts. They're going to commit cold-blooded murder. They're going to spill blood in the temple courts in pursuit of supposed truth. As fallen creatures living in a fallen world, the perpetuation of evil, it should not surprise the mature Christian. If you've known Christ any time and you know the depravity of your own heart, evil should not surprise us. The execution of 19 10-year-olds last week, the systematic murder of unborn children every single day, the bloody takeovers in Afghanistan or the Ukraine, the boundless and seemingly boundless corruption of our political system, the perpetuation of lies from the LGBTQ or Black Lives Matter movements, none of these should surprise the mature Christian. Blatant evils that we see should not shock us if you truly know Christ and his word. And when the Christian is surprised, when we are shocked by the evil that we see and we experienced, we're not only denying, listen, this is important, we're not only denying the very real condition of every human heart that we are truly and totally depraved. Um, We are denying the means by which that heart can be changed. When you say something as a Christian like, how could this happen? Or who would do such a thing? You are actually going against the very word of God. You are saying that the heart is not that depraved, that people really won't act in accordance with their sinful nature. And you're denying the, the need for Jesus Christ and the gospel to change the heart. Right? If you diminish the power of evil, then you'll diminish the solution. If evil's not that bad, then you can find a solution other than Christ to fix the evil. But the evil is that bad, and only Christ can resolve it. The prophet Jeremiah was right when he said, Jeremiah 17, 9, you know this verse, the heart is what? Deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? So the law can't change the heart. Willpower cannot change the heart. Education cannot change the heart. Money cannot change the heart. Only Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit, 
has the power to change a heart that is desperately wicked above all things and make it new, born again in him. Only Christ. Now, ever since the fall, the the heart of man has been inward turned, bent on itself, selfish, self-centered, self-glorifying, doing, we do what we want to do in our own eyes, not what we think is most pleasing in the eyes of God. And as a result, real, man-made, man-perpetuated evil has been part of the human experience since Genesis chapter 3. And here's the shock of the hour. Are you ready? It will be part of our human experience until Christ comes again in glory. Those are the bookends. So don't be shocked when you see evil. Don't be shocked when you experience evil. Don't be shocked when you exercise evil yourself. You're a sinner saved by grace, but you're still a sinner. Shock and awe is not the right response. In fact, I would argue that the only reason that we do not see multiple school shootings every single day is because of God's common grace upon fallen creation. We should be praising God that this happens so infrequently, that God, out of his infinite love and mercy, actively restrains evil in this world. If he did not, we wouldn't even be able to gather like this. We'd never make it out of our houses, let alone be able to gather in a church like this. It would be exponentially worse, my beloved, if not for God's common grace. So we shouldn't be shocked by the evil that we see. And as a Christian, you shouldn't be shocked by the evil that comes against you. Jesus said, if they hated me, what? They will hate you. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. If you're a follower of Christ, we should expect that evil to come against us. We should expect that. Paul was a faithful follower of Jesus Christ. He faithfully proclaimed the gospel, and people hated him for it, but he wasn't ever shocked. He expected this because the world hates God. If he's going to proclaim God in Christ, then the world would hate him too. And so unlike many Western Christians today who believe, and I hope this is not you, if it is, seek forgiveness, we believe that we deserve a life free of evil, free of suffering, free of hardship, because we're in Christ. Things should always go our way. No pain, no suffering, certainly no school shootings, at least not with my children, because God promises me that. Not true. The apostle understood the evil in every human heart, and he understood that evil finds its origin in rebellion against God. So if evil in the human heart starts in its rebellion against God and you are pursuing God and you are declaring Christ, then guess what? That evil will come against you too because you're standing for the very God that the heart hates most. And therefore Paul expected evil, real, painful, conspiratorial evil, men wanting him dead, even though he had committed no crime. So the question for you, my beloved, before we go to the next point, do you... Do you see the real evil in this world, in the hearts of man, and even in yourself? If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, are you faithfully engaging the lost? Do they, does the world know that you're a Christian? And if so, are you experiencing that persecution? Do you expect it? Are you not shocked by it? Outside the church and inside the church. This is not a safe haven. Pursue Christ fervently, and you're going to get persecuted even inside the walls of a church. Or are you caught off guard a lot? Are you, as a Christian, in a perpetual state of, how could that happen? Why would they do that? I'm such a nice person. Surprised that your unsaved coworker, after 20 years, would throw you under the bus for a promotion, and you're shocked by it. Shocked that your unsaved spouse would cheat on you with one of your best friends. You're shocked by it. Shocked that your unsaved parents or children or close friends would ridicule you for your faith in this Jesus. Shocked that all those 
who call themselves Christians, what even they would tempt you to sin, enticing you to, let's say, watch movies that are not appropriate or engage in relationships that are not, not appropriate, maybe even approving of your forsaking the gathering or not using your gifts and talents to grow the church so you can enjoy life now. 1 Peter 4.12 makes it very clear. Listen, he said, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. Then he says this, verse 13, but rejoice insofar as you, ha- as you share Christ's suffering that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. So instead of being shocked, the Bible says rejoice in the midst of suffering. How do you like that one for a hard teaching? Instead of being shocked by the evil that you see, the evil that you experience, and even the evil that comes out of your own heart, Peter says, the Bible says, Christ says, rejoice that Christ will overcome this, that he will overcome it for you and one day for the entire world. All right, so first point, you got it? Mature Christians must not be shocked by the very real evil they see and experience as followers of Jesus Christ. But I have to tell you, that's not going to be a major movement in sanctifying you. Not being shocked by the evil that we see is not sufficient, I think, to get us through the evil. Right? Say, okay, I'm not shocked by it, but I'm still really struggling with it. I'm struggling experiencing it. How do we get through the evil that we see and the evil that we experience in a manner that's pleasing to God? Point number two, point number two, participating in providence. Look at verse 16. Again, this is a providence saturated passage. Verse 16, now the son of Paul's sister heard of their ambush, so he went and he entered the barracks and told Paul. We, we know so little about Paul's life, his family. We know his parents were Roman citizens because Paul was born a Roman citizen. We now know that Paul had a sister, and the sister had a nephew. But there's really not much of anything we know about Paul's life. So the 40 conspirators, they're, they're cooking up their plot to, to get Paul, to kill Paul. And Paul's nephew just so happens, just so happens by chance, by luck, to be in earshot of their plan, right? I mean, that's what most people today would say, oh, how lucky Paul was. What's the chance? What is the chance? Well, the chance is zero. There's no such thing as chance in God's economy. If, if God is truly sovereign, I love how R.C. Sproul said it. If God is truly sovereign, he said, not a single molecule in the entire universe runs free of his control. Not a molecule, let alone a person, runs free of the sovereign control of God. In other words, nothing, my beloved, And this should bring you great comfort. Nothing, nothing ever happens by chance. Every single thing, every single molecule is directly or indirectly controlled by God's sovereign decree. No chance, no luck. Don't let it be part of your vocabulary as a Christian. Don't say, oh, I can't believe how lucky I was. No such thing. How providential God was in your life, yes. Luck, no. Chance, no. So just as the Jews were plotting to kill Paul, God had... Paul's nephew there in earshot to hear the plan so that he could go and tell his uncle, hey, you're in trouble. These guys are serious. They've taken an oath. They're going to try to kill you. It wasn't chance. It was providence. It was God working in the situation to spare Paul's life. And that means, my beloved, when things happen in your life that look like luck or look like chance, we know it's providence. We know it's God working it out. And, and, and that's for good and bad. God is always working in the lives of his children. And so just as the mature Christian is to expect evil, 
to be a real part of following Christ, so too is the mature Christian to expect God's providential hand to be actively involved, listen, in every single detail of your life. Your whole life, from beginning to end, is providentially directed, guided, lifted up, cared for by God. Good and bad. Uh, Grudem, from his systematic theology, he defined providence like this. I thought it was good, it's simple and helpful. He said, providence is this, God being continually involved with all created things in such a way that he, one, listen, he keeps them existing and maintaining their properties with which he created them, so he he sustains them. Number two, he cooperates with created things in every action to cause them to act as they do. And number three, he directs them to fulfill his purposes. So in short, in Christ, this pertains to all creation, but in Christ, God preserves your life, God works concurrently with you to direct your life, and by his power, God will accomplish his purpose for your life. Your end will be determined by God. That means not a single thing in your life, not one thing is left to chance. Do you believe that? Not one single thing. The smallest thing in your life, the largest decision you ever made, not one thing in your life left to chance, all in the context of providence. That's, that's a tough statement. That is, that every single thing, every single thing, Proverbs 16, 9, the heart of man plans his way, finish it with me, but the Lord establishes his steps. It's God's doing. It's God's doing. What great comfort, I believe, this should bring for the Christian who feels at times that life is out of control. I mean, there are times, my beloved, unless you're very different from me, where it feels like things are out of control, like you just can't seem to get a hold on life. There are times when we, we feel like we've been dealt a bad hand, maybe even angry with God that he would do and allow things to happen to you that have happened to you. Or maybe you've gone so far as to think that God's forgotten about you and he no longer cares about you. Not true, not true in any capacity. Just the opposite. His providential caring hand is always upon you in Christ. Look at verse 17. Paul called one of the centurions and he said, take this young man to the tribune for he has something to tell them. So as a Roman citizen, Paul actually, he had a guard at his disposal. Remember, he wasn't arrested. He's, he's being held to get more information, but he's not a prisoner. He's not in chains. And so he calls the centurion. He has the right to communicate that. Verse 18, so he, the centurion, took him, he took the nephew and brought him to the tribune and said, Paul, the prisoner, called me and asked me to bring this young man to you as he has something to say to you. So Lysias probably thinks Paul's going to finally tell me what this is all about. Why the riot? Why the persecution? Why were the Sanhedrin? Why are they so mad at you? He thinks he's going to get some information, but instead he gets a warning. Look at verse 19. The tribune took him by the hand, so he takes the nephew aside, and going aside asked him privately, what is it that you have to tell me? And so Paul's nephew shares the, the conspirator's assassination plan and then he says to Lysias in verse 21, he says, do not be persuaded by them. Don't listen to what they say. Don't be sucked into this assassination plot. Verse 22, so the tribune dismissed the young man, charging him, tell no one that you have informed me of these things. He obviously wants to protect Paul's nephew's life because he found out he'd be in danger. And he also wants to make counter plans. He wants to figure a way to get Paul out of this, this situation. So the, the placement of Paul's nephew, listen, the intervention of Paul's nephew in saving his uncle. It was a big deal to go to Paul and then go to Lysias as a Jew. The centurion's willingness to go to Lysias 
Even Lysias' plan, receiving the nephew, hearing the plan, and having a counter plan, all of this, without exception, was God's providence. Every single detail, God is moving to his purposed end. Not only to protect Paul and get Paul to Rome, because that's what Paul, that's what God had decreed to do, but I believe to reveal the intricate watch care God has over every single son and daughter of his. Right now, you read this and you think, well, that was Paul. I mean, Paul is, God is working through Paul's life. He's the missionary to the Gentiles. He's got to get to Rome. Certainly, God has to orchestrate that to make sure that happens or it may not happen. True. But what about you? Are you so insignificant in God's economy? Not an apostle, not an apostle of the Gentiles, that God does not have that detailed providential care and work in your life? Of course not. You absolutely, 100%, as a son or daughter of God, being united to Christ, God is that detailed, that intricate in moving and caring for you and directing your life to its purpose. And do you believe that? Do you believe that? Because if you do, you may live very differently than being filled with anxiety and fear and trepidation. Intricate detail. Each party, the assassins, Paul, Paul's nephew, the centurion, Lysias, they're each doing in those moments, listen very carefully because I want to touch on this. In those moments, they're doing exactly what they wanted to do, what they chose to do freely, and God, at the exact same time, is concurrently directing their desires to accomplish his end for Paul. Did you get that? So they're doing what they want to do, And God is simultaneously, at the exact same moment, he is directing their desires to do what he wants them to do. This doctrine is called the doctrine of concurrence. We've taught to it before here. It's a little hard. You think, God, that means God is sovereign and I'm a free agent. Yes. That means I'm making choices and God is using those choices to accomplish his will. Yes. One author put it like this. I think it's simple and it was helpful for me. The doctrine of concurrence is the reality that God and human beings both act at the same time so that the Lord's plan is fulfilled and our choices are really and truly our own choices. God's plan is fulfilled and you are truly choosing what you desire to choose. If you want an example, there's no better than the Old Testament. We know Joseph sold into slavery. He said to his brothers upon their reconciliation, what you meant for evil intended evil god meant for good right the doctrine of concurrence played out in that storyline so it was god listen it was god who providentially intervened to thwart the plan of the assassins he was doing that and paul's actions were not independent of god's providence you with me god providentially intervened to thwart the will of the assassins and paul actively engaged in the providence of god so providence is not listen saints because this is a western misnomer providence is not let go and let god there is no such thing in the bible as let go and let god remember that years ago that song came out who was that i don't remember that christian singer but she said you know jesus take the wheel well that's bad you better hold on the wheel as you're driving the car let go let god or sit back relax and see what happens these are not definitions of biblical providence god's providence Specifically now, his care and governance over his people takes place concurrently with our choices and our decisions. So we are actively engaged in the providence of God. And that means, Christian, you are expected and you are equipped by God to make God-honoring, God-glorifying decisions every day so that you will walk in his providential care. 
So let's take Paul, for example. He knows he's supposed to go to Rome. Right? He knows that Jesus actually shows up in person to tell him, I'm sending you to Rome. He knows that if he's assassinated the next day, well, he's not going to Rome, he's going to go to heaven. Right? So he knows all this. The revealed will of God had been made known to him. So once his nephew tells him about the assassination plot, he doesn't sit back in his cell and say, well, you know what? My Lord appeared to me. I'm going to Rome. Let's see this whole thing unravel. I'm just going to sit here, and I'm going to relax, and I'm going to let, let the Holy Spirit do. That's what we say today, right? Let the Holy Spirit do what the Holy Spirit's going to do. The Holy Spirit has an expectation that you're going to do what is right and honoring to God. And what was right and honoring to God in this situation was for Paul to tell his nephew, go tell Lysias so I don't die tomorrow. Right? You say, well, what kind of faith is that? Well, that's complete faith. Right? Walking in wisdom, making wise choices in accordance with God's will is walking in faith. And so as a faithful servant of God, Paul did everything to exercise, to walk in, to see God's will done. Not to accomplish the will of God. No man can do that. Only God accomplishes his will. But to participate in God's will being fulfilled in the choices that we make. Now, this, this, this may sound a little complicated, but it's not. It means that God is providential over your life, and in his providence, he expects you to live as a Christian, according to his word, as a kingdom citizen. So the doctrine of providence and participation, it's missed by many in the West today. We do one of two things. We either, we either know what God's will is and we thwart it, we go against it, or we take the let go and let God approach, and we say, you know, I'm just going to sit back and see what happens. God's in charge. Neither are biblical, my beloved. The prophet Jonah attempted the first, did he not? He, he was called by God to go to Nineveh and proclaim a message of, of repentance and faith. And Jonah thought, I have another plan. I don't want to do that. Jonah hated the Ninevites. And so he boards a ship. You know the story. He's ca- ca- thrown over the ship. He's swallowed by a large fish. And in the end, that fish does what? That fish regurgitates him spits him out on the shores of Nineveh so he can go and do what God called him to do in the first place. So he attempted to thwart the will of God, but there is no thwarting the will of God, right? You can do the will of God one of two ways, the easy way or the hard way. Jonah took the hard way. You don't want to spend three days in the belly of a fish. Jesus came along, and I think he defines our cultural moment a little bit better. We definitely work against the will of God, but I think we also, in the context of the evangelical church, we think that we're supposed to just sit around and watch things happen. In Matthew chapter 6, Jesus was teaching the crowds of God's providential care over his people, that God is actively involved in caring for his people. Jesus said this, Matthew chapter 6, do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. Now, Jesus was not advocating slothfulness, He was saying, don't be disobedient to the command to work and stay at home and not work. He's saying, don't be anxious over what you will eat and what you will wear or where you will live. He said, don't be anxious over these things. God will provide. Now, here's the key. God will provide, but not independent of you. Right? God will provide by what? By making sure you have a job, by giving you the desire to get up in the morning and go to work. God will provide for you by the means he's ordained to provide. And that is for Christians participating in the buying of food and the buying of clothes because we have money that we've worked for. And so this constant interaction. Jesus says at the end of Matthew 6, he said, instead of being anxious, instead of being worried, he said, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. He said, live as a kingdom citizen. Do what you're called to do. And God's care will be upon 
you. So not foolishly striving to thwart the will of God like Jonah and not sitting back as a bystander saying let go and let God, but being like Paul, listen, in all situations, at all times, striving to make the decisions that are most honoring to him. You say, I want to live and participate and walk in the province of God. Then every moment of every day, strive to make every decision that is most glorifying. Not just glorifying, but most glorifying to him. The big decisions, the small decisions, we are as Christians what? Whether we eat or drink, we are to what? Do all things to the glory of God. Every single thing in your life. And that makes sense. If God's actively involved in intricate detail in your life, then every single detail in your life matters, and you should try to make choices that are most pleasing to him. Now, I don't know about you. That's hard. That's hard for me. I think every single choice I make, should, I should strive to be the most honoring, to strive to be in God's will according to God's providential plan for me. And that means, my beloved, my brother mentioned this this week, and it was so perfect with the sermon. It means not just doing your normal routine week after week, month after month, year after year. Right? We are habitual creatures, and we get into these grooves, and we stay that. But if you move through your days or your weeks, and you're not thinking, is this most pleasing to God? Does God want me to do this today? Is there something else I should be doing today, next week, with my life? Those are good questions to ask and to ponder. It is God's will for you to be a person, for example, of prayer. It's God's will. That's a revealed, decreed will in the Bible. Just like Jesus, a person of prayer. But that means what? You must make time each day to pray. How do you participate in God's providential will for your life to be a person of prayer? Well, you got to pray. You can't say, wait, just, Lord, just move me, and when I pray, I'll, I know it'll be. No, sit down and pray. You are to, God has willed it for you to know and live out his word. But that requires what? That requires that you know his word and that you actively strive to participate with the power of the Holy Spirit, in daily doing it, taking measures to faithfully know and do the word of God. It's not just going to come through osmosis. It's not just going to come like this, through hearing a sermon and then leaving for the next seven days until you hear another. Years ago, a brother in Christ, um, he was graduating from college, and he shared with me that he wanted to be married. I thought, well, that's, that's wonderful. And he said he's from a, a divorced home. He didn't really know how to even go about thinking about it, let alone what that might look like for him. And then he wrongly concluded, he said, you know what, I'm just going to let go and let God, and God will bring me my wife, and I don't have to do anything. I said, well, you know, he might do that, but that's not biblical. It's not biblical to just say, I'm just going to sit and wait. I said, if you really desire to be married, and, and God wants you to be married, then he will marry you, but there are things you should do first. And he said, well, like what? I said, well, first you should be praying for your future spouse, for your future wife. And I, and I would add to the church, you should have the church praying for your future wife, whom you've yet to meet. And I said, you personally, you need to be preparing yourself to be a godly husband. You need to be growing and maturing in your faith. You need to be uh, working so you can establish a good home for your wife. You need to be in a position where you can protect and provide for her. You need to be mature enough to love her, Ephesians 5, as Christ loves the church. And I could see his eyes getting really big, thinking, oh, maybe I don't want to get married. I said, you need to, and you need to be looking. You need to be looking for a woman who has godly qualities who who matches a biblical woman that you can enter into a covenant of marriage with that you can work together in christ for um i said you know the church if you can have the church pray for you have the church meet her have the church breathe counsel because we get blindsided by love we see things that are not there or we don't see things that are there 
and uh, um, he took the counsel. He was eventually, he was eventually married, um, but I didn't want him having this false understanding of biblical providence, that God was just going to do it independent of his responsibility to walk in the providence of God. God works to bring about the purpose end of his people, and we are to actively work to bring that end to pass by making God-honoring decisions. That's not complicated, is it? No, it's hard. It's hard, but not complicated. All right, number one, mature Christian, do not, do not be surprised by evil. Expect it. Number two, participate in God's providence. Can I give you one more? Are you done? You're not done, are you? I'm not finished. Number three, prepare a place. I think if you want a long-term vision on this, not to be overwhelmed by evil, knowing that God's providence is working and you want to walk in it, a long-term vision I think is brought out here. Subtly, but brought out. I think Luke was trying to show us something. Prepare for a palace. What do I mean by that? So Lysias responds immediately to Paul's threat. Did you notice that? Look at verse 23. Then he, Lysias, called two of the centurions and said, Get ready, 200 soldiers with 70 horsemen and 200 spearmen to go as far as Caesarea at the third hour of the night. That was 9 p.m. Verse 24, also provide mounts for Paul to ride and bring him safely to Felix the governor. Now this is, <laughs> Lysias has been less than impressive thus far. And as unimpressive as he was and the bad decisions he make, you talk about going overboard. I mean, so he immediately wants Paul out of the city. So this is happening that evening, and these troops are being rounded up. The urgency to leave at 9 p.m. to go anywhere at that time was ridiculous. No one did that. But he wants them, he wants them marching through the night. And so 60 miles to Caesarea, he says, get them together and get going. So not only was the timing and the urgency extraordinary, but the number of soldiers, 480 armed soldiers, are going to escort the Apostle Paul to Caesarea. 480. I mean, Paul, here Paul is on horseback. He's got his own little Roman army. He's got his own Roman army that's escorting him the way that that was, that was almost half. This is amazing. That was almost half of all the armed soldiers under Lysias' command in Jerusalem, sending all of them, half of them, to go with Paul. So we know that Lysias didn't want anything to go wrong. He wanted Paul out of Jerusalem. He wanted Paul out of his hair. We know that because he committed some crimes against Paul. So he wants to make sure that Paul gets out 480 soldiers he sends him. He sends him to Felix. We'll talk more about Felix the man next week. He sends him to Felix. Felix was the governor of the areas of Judea and Samaria, the Roman governor of Judea and Samaria at the time. And he sends him to the governor to hear the case because it's a, it's a capitally punishable crime. Right? The Jews want him dead, and, and he was a Roman citizen. So Lysias was way too low on the, uh, the authority scale to make these decisions. And so Paul was going to go. He had to get to a higher uh, authority in order for these uh, decisions to be made. And so Lysias, in customary fashion, he sends Paul with a letter. Look at verse 24. And he wrote a letter to this effect. And so he recounts, I'm not going to read it to you, he recounts in part what had transpired the previous days and why he's sending Paul to be transferred to, to Felix. But the letter as you would come to expect from Lysias by now, it's not completely true. It's not completely forthright. And if you were listening at read, you're like, hey, that's not what happened. That's not how Luke recorded it. Uh, we would expect this from Lysias. He twists it. He not only twists it to make sure that Felix has no idea that he put a Roman citizen in chain and was about to flog him, but he makes himself out to be a savior. Look at verse 27. This is, this is, this is humorous, by the way, my beloved. 
This is Lysias now writing to Felix. He said, this man was seized by the Jews and was about to be killed by them when I came upon them with the soldiers and I rescued him having learned that he was a Roman citizen. And that's not what happened. Luke told us he thought he was an Egyptian assassin and took him into change. He was going to have him flogged and it was only upon the flogging that he learned he was a Roman citizen. So Lysias, he's going to try to get some, some brownie points here and you know, upgrade his, uh, Felix's thought of him. And, and he certainly is trying to cover up the fact that he had arrested Paul, put him in a change, was going to have him flogged without due process of law. So he's in the cover-up mode too. All right, and then he informs Felix uh, about the attempts to gather information before the Sanhedrin. Um, and, that, and, he, and he does say, and to, we'll give Lysias this, this credit, he said, I don't believe he's worthy of imprisonment or death. That's what the Jews are saying. Um, Lysias throws in his two cents. Look at verse 29. He said, I found that he was being accused about questions of their law, being charged with nothing deserving death or imprisonment. And then he tells Felix, I'm going to send the accusers your way. They're coming also, and they're going to give their case so you can adjudicate it. Verse 30, and it was disclosed to me that there would be a plot against the man. I sent him to you at once, ordering his accusers also to state, to state before you what they have against him. Verse 31, so the soldiers, according to their instructions, they took Paul and brought him by night to Antipatris. So Antipatris is about halfway between Jerusalem and, and Caesarea, about 30 miles, actually 25 miles due north. And because it was so late, they got to stop. I mean, they, they got to stop and they got to get some sleep. Um, once they get there, verse 32, and the next day, the soldiers, they, they, the soldiers return to the barracks, letting the horsemen go on with them. So they're, they're far enough away from Jerusalem where they don't think the conspirators are going to be able to get to Paul. And so they return home and they let the horsemen carry on. Verse 33, when they had come to Caesarea and delivered the letter to the governor, uh, they presented Paul also before him. Verse 34, on reading the letter, he asked what province he was from. So Paul, Felix wants to know, is this, this is my responsibility? I mean, do I have to do this, this work? And he finds out that, yeah, it was part of his providence. It was under his jurisdiction. So Felix, as governor, had to adjudicate the case. Um, verse 34, latter part. And when he learned that he was from Cilicia, which was under Felix's jurisdiction, he said, I will give you a hearing when your accusers arrive. So the first leg of Paul's journey to Rome ends here in Caesarea under Felix's watch care, awaiting the accusers to come and make their case why they think Paul should be executed. What's fascinating to me here is that while Paul awaits his accusers and while he's under Felix's watch care for two years, by the way. You talk about long trials, long imprisonments. For two years, from 57, approximately 57 to 59 AD, Paul is under Felix's care, and he remains there until Festus, Felix's replacement, comes in. But where he finds himself living is so extraordinary to me. He's put into Herod's praetorium. Look at verse, the latter part of verse 35. And this is the end of our passage. He, Felix, commanded him, Paul, to be guarded in Herod's praetorium. For two years, Herod's former palace that the Romans had taken over. Now, Herod the Great, you probably know him from your, your Bible history. He was the king of the Jews who ruled from 39 to 4 B.C., before, right before Jesus was born. And he was considered by many a master builder of his time. In Caesarea, he built for himself an opulent palace on this piece of land that jetted out into the Mediterranean Sea. 
And so this palace had views. This is where Paul was staying for two years. So when you think of imprisonment for Paul in the palace, not that bad of a life. He's, he's on, this, on this isthmus that sticks out in this opulent palace, views in every direction. It had an Olympic-sized swimming pool carved out of solid bedrock. I mean, this was a place that you'd want to rent for a weekend and hang out. In fact, so luxurious was the palace that Josephus, the Jewish historian, called it the most magnificent. The most magnificent. Now, after the death of Herod the Great in 4 B.C., uh, Caesarea became the seat of Roman authority in that area. And Roman governors, from Felix to Festus to Pontius Pilate, that was their place of residency, living in Herod's old palace. And they would do that for the next 500 years until the fall of Rome. So here in this mini-narrative of Paul making his way to Rome, we find, I think, a much greater narrative for all who are in Christ. So when Paul's in Jerusalem, what? He's a dead man. He's marked for death while he's in Jerusalem. And had it not been for the providence of God, he would have died. Certainly those assassins, the 40 plus, would have executed their plan. But it was God's will for Paul to live and testify to the gospel in Rome. So rather than the 40 Jewish conspirators having their way in the taking of Paul's life, Paul finds himself personally escorted by 480 Roman soldiers out of Jerusalem, out of harm's way, to the safety and security of living for the next two years in the former palace of Herod the Great, King of the Jews. Oh, that's extraordinary. You talk about an extraordinary turn of events for the Apostle Paul. All according to what? To God's providential plan for his life. It's an extraordinary turn of events. You know, the first time that the word providence is used in the entire Bible. Do you know what it was? Genesis chapter 22. In Genesis chapter 22, if you remember, Abraham was about to offer up Isaac upon the altar according to God's command. Right? God said to Abraham, take your son Isaac, whom you love, take him up to Mount Moriah, and I want you to offer him as a living sacrifice unto me. So they get up on the mountain, Genesis chapter 22, verse 7, and Isaac says to his father, Behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? He's not getting it yet. It's him. And this is what Abraham says. Here's your first providence in the entire Bible. Verse 8, Abraham said, God will provide. God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. And God will provide. He did, Jehovah Jireh, by his providence, he made sure that that sin offering was not Isaac. But as you know, they look up and there's a, a ram stuck in the thicket. And they take the ram and they offer it instead of Isaac, the son. So 2,000 years from the first promise, this first providential care made in Genesis chapter 22. 2,000 years later, God provided another sacrifice for the children of Abraham. Not a ram, not a sheep, not a goat, but his own son whom what? Whom he loved. God's own son whom he loved. God sent his beloved son as a lamb of God who would take away the sins of the world. Here's the great promise. The real king of the Jews coming to give his life as a ransom for Jew and Gentile, for anybody who would repent and believe and put their faith in him to be saved. You see, my beloved, in order to overcome the evil of the human heart, Jesus Christ gave his perfectly obedient love-saturated heart in our place upon the cross. 
It was God's providential plan before the creation of the world, before anything ever was, before the fall in Genesis 3, to overcome our evil by sending the real king of the Jews, Jesus Christ. But he didn't send him to a palace. He didn't send him to Caesarea to enjoy his days with this 360-degree view of the Mediterranean Sea. No, he didn't send him to a palace. He sent him to a cross because that's where we belonged. That's where we belonged as a result of our sin. And he did this so that all who repent of their sins and turn and put their faith in the true king of the Jews could be saved, could overcome the evil of their own hearts and by God's providence be what? Be born again. Be born again. Given new hearts and new desires, godly desires to live and to love as sons and daughters. My beloved, the gospel comes and tells us that it was Jesus Christ who ascended that cross to overcome the evil in your heart Right, so when we, we hear Jeremiah tell us that their heart is deceitfully wicked above all else, who can understand it? That's you first. You say, that's me. How do you overcome the evil? Well, you can't, but Christ can. And then through faith, he does that for you and through you. And that means, my friends, by grace through faith, the sinner who, like Paul, is slated for execution because of our sins, we not only get to escape death, We not only get to be forgiven by God and declared sons and daughters in the righteousness of Christ, but we have have the great hope, regardless of how hard your life may be and how things may happen according to God's providence in this life, your hope in Christ is a palace. It is a palace infinitely greater than the one Herod built on the Mediterranean Sea. Your hope in Christ is an imperial palace with the imperial king, Jesus Christ, reigning in that palace with you for how long? Forever and ever and ever. That's your end if you're in Christ. Being with and enjoying Jesus in his palace. My beloved, if the evil in this world and the evil in your heart is being and ultimately will be overcome by Christ. It is being right now as God sanctifies you in the spirit and as he, he promises one day, right, to judge the living and the dead, all evil will be cast out. If that is true, then you have no need to be anxious. Listen, we have anxiety in this church. There's no reason to be anxious if you know that Christ has overcome the evil in your heart and ultimately will overcome all evil for all people. No need to be anxious, no need to be afraid, no need to be shocked when you see evil or when you experience it in your own life. If you are united with Christ, then know this. God has providentially called you, he has saved you, and he has destined you to live with his son in his palace. That's your end if you're united with Christ. Regardless of what happens on this side, that's your end. And that means you can... You can stop living for the palaces and opulence of this world. Hmm? You don't need to be materialistic in this world. I mean, we get a palace. Jesus said that you inherit the entire earth. So whatever you're trying to get, I, I don't think it's as big as the whole earth. right? You get that if you're a child of God. You can stop pursuing, stop living for those things. You can stop being afraid. You can stop saying, well, what if I get real serious about Christ? What if I really pursue Christ like a real Christian? I'm in prayer, I'm in my word, I'm sharing the gospel, I'm making disciples, I'm engaged in ministry. What if I really do that? I know it's going to happen. The Bible says I'm going to be persecuted 
for the sake of righteousness. It's going to come at me. I don't want that. Well, if you know that this is your end and that evil has been overcome for you already by Christ, then you don't have to be afraid. You can be the Christian that God has called and equipped you to be, my beloved. I think that there's so much more in each of us, is there not? Oh, there's so much more in each of us by the power of the Spirit to be the Christians God has called and equipped us to be. We're not near it yet. Not this morning, not next week. But how glorious that we can pursue that knowing that God's providential care minute by minute is tracking our steps and placing our steps. You can be bold. You can be brave. You can pursue holiness. You can forsake the things of this world because God is with you and God is for you. It means, my friends, that your life can be defined by a Christ-like love and a Christ-like sacrifice regardless of the cost because God's plan for you is perfect. It's a perfect plan. Even when things don't seem perfect to you, it's God's perfect plan for you. And that means pursuing Christ and living as he wants you to live, even if it brings persecution, is good. Because God's plan is good. Because God is what? We had a chance to sing. He's always good. He's always good. You can rest assured that God is watching over and directing your every step No matter what happens on this side of heaven, nothing can separate you from the love of God which you have in Christ. Nothing can overturn your eternal destiny, your dwelling place with Jesus in his palace forever and ever. And so Paul was right, as you heard Kirk read, and we pray, Paul was right when he said, in all things, God works for the good of those who love him and have been called according to his purpose, Romans 8, 28. All things, my beloved. God works for your good and his glory. Even the things you can't understand, most of the times the things you can't understand, for your good and his glory. Paul believed this, and it resulted in him living a bold life in faith. Question for you, do you believe it, and will you live like that? Do you believe it, and will you live like that? Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, the Apostle Paul calls us to live as he lived. Not bringing glory to himself, but because he was living by the power of the Spirit as Christ lived. We see here the Apostle Paul had a firm understanding of God's real providence in his life. He was not afraid. He was bold in Christ because he knew every step of the way God was intricately going before him. I pray you would bless me, bless my brothers and sisters, bless your true church throughout the world with this same understanding, this same doctrinal truth that God's providence is upon us, that we are called like Paul to actively work in conjunction concurrently with that providence that we might, Lord, with the short time that we're here, be the best witnesses, the most glorious testimonies to the power of the gospel. Oh, Father, I pray you would do that for my brothers and sisters. To that end, Father, give us that hope of eternity with Jesus that we we fix our eyes completely on the grace, as the Bible says, the grace to be brought to us when Christ comes again in glory. Fix our eyes on Christ. He is worthy of such a life. Fix our eyes on our eternal destination, living with Jesus and the saints forever and ever in his eternal palace. He is worthy of it, Father. Give us that great love for Christ that compels us to be the most bold witnesses of him. I pray you would do that, Lord, 
for our blessing. I pray you would do it for the blessing of the Cambrian Park community that we might um, see others come to a saving grace. But as always, I pray it for your glory. You are worthy of it, Father. Cause us to live to that end, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.